Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. In this podcast, I look beyond the easels, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own artwork and experiences. Episode 76, A Journey from Fine Art to Urban Sketching with Paul Heaston. Hi everyone, and welcome back. I've just got a few quick updates and we'll jump right into the interview. As many of you know, I have a Patreon that allows users to support the podcast and my creative journey. However, I've heard from a few people they didn't want to commit to kind of a monthly subscription or, or payment system. So I decided to try a service called Buy Me a Coffee. And the way this works is if you like me or my work or my podcast, um, you can go to either drawinginspiration.fm or mikehenley.com and you can buy me a coffee, but I changed the wording to buy me a brush because it made more sense. And so the way it works is um, it's a one-time thing. So you can go and quote unquote, buy me a brush and uh, for $5, or you could buy three brushes or five brushes. And it's a one-time thing. The payment gets routed to me. The uh, buy me a coffee service takes a small fee, but it, it goes towards kind of supporting, you know, specifically the podcast uh, because there are significant expenses around uh, doing all of this. And so I thought I just would give people that alternative because I've had people say, you know, I want to give you some money, but I don't want, to, don't want to subscribe to Patreon. So this allows that opportunity. So Patreon still exists, and I'm still kind of reworking the tiers on that. But if you really enjoy the podcast, uh, this is a way to say thank you. You know, I, obviously I encourage you to send me an email or <laughs> provide comments or send me a message. But if you want to uh, to give something back, this is a way to do it. So once again, thank you to all the supporters, all the Patreon supporters, and all of you who uh, message me and share your stories with me about your journey and how this podcast has impacted your life. So it means so much to me. So please don't stop doing that. I love uh, getting those messages and I, I try and respond to every one of them. I'm putting a, a greater effort into doing that quickly with so much going on with my full-time job and this but uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. So just a few uh, updates with regard to some of the pieces I've created in the last couple of weeks. I did an owl uh, with colored pencil on black paper, and this was kind of fun. I was trying to, I used a copyright-free image of an owl, a photograph of an owl, and I used that as the reference. And what I wanted to do was pull the owl out of the paper, and that's kind of how I approached it with the colored pencil. And I'm really happy how it turned out. I, you know, the the paper itself is a, a Fabriano uh, black black, I think it's called. And I wanted to really kind of pull that owl forward, throw in the highlights. The paper's kind of rough, so you can see some of that through the texture. But it was a really fun kind of play. I, I just wanted to play with this paper, and um, you know, get back to colored pencils a little bit. You know, I can't. I got to move my mediums around a little bit. I just love them all so much. But um, yeah, so I'll post a link to that. I'll post a link to all the art I'm going to talk about here in the show notes. So I've also been adding to my perpetual journal. So we have a pond and every year, and I, I put up these duck houses around the pond. I think we've got six now. And every year these mergansers, common hooded mergansers and wood ducks come to our pond and nest. They emerge, uh, they disappear, and we see them the next year. So they arrived. And so that was my entry for uh, two weeks ago. I put in this uh, merganser, and then I did a fun reel around it as well. So you can see kind of 
that work in progress. And that was a lot of fun. This is a chance for me to play with reels in something like Instagram. So I will provide a link uh, to that in the show notes. The other thing I did with regard to my the perpetual journal is I put in a, um, a turtle as well, a painted turtle. And obviously they're coming back to the pond now. So this is an important event. And it kind of confirms that maybe spring is actually here, even though it looks like we have snow in the forecast. So this piece was very similar to the Merganzers. I started with just a simple Micron 005 uh, sepia ink pen and uh, sketched it out and then came in with some Daniel Smith watercolors and then a little bit of white gouache at the end. And it was just so much fun to play with this painted turtle. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I think that I'm going to do more of this. And, you know, in talking about that, you know, the perpetual journal is something that I'm doing one image a week, whatever kind of, whatever I see, whatever's out there. But I have a smaller A6 journal. So the, the perpetual journal is an A4 size. The A6 is quite small. And in that, I'm just focusing on little studies. So I did a uh, milkweed, a uh, milkweed that had gone to seed last fall. So I drew that, added a bit of watercolor. I did Lily of the Valley, which aren't up yet where I am, but they are coming. Uh, my mom used to love these flowers, so obviously I have a, a connection with them in that way, but we have them all around the house. And so this is based off a photo I took last year. And then the other entry in this little book is a blue jay feather. I hadn't drawn a feather before. I thought, I'm going to try this. So I did it with, once again, a 005 uh, Micron using the sepia ink as well. And then I came in with some watercolor and then I added a little bit of a shadow and I'm just really happy with how this turned out. Uh, I used the Pentel water brush with this one and it was, it was so much fun. Um, you know, I'm playing with the Pentel water brush as well as uh, the Rosemary and Co brushes. And it's just been so fun to kind of move back and forth between these. And, you know, I'm still doing the graphite pieces in the background. I've got a couple of commissions I'm working on, but I just love being able to dance around these different mediums and, uh, you know, with spring coming or spring here, hopefully, <laughs> and uh, with summer coming, I want to get out more and do more of this stuff. So I'm going to try and engage with local artists and go out and just create and have fun. So I'm really looking forward to this. I think that's it for art updates, but, you know, I was reminded of something recently and I just wanted to say this out loud for you to hear and for me to hear. <laughs> so I think regardless of what you have, in your mind. It may be a short story, it may be a sculpture, it may be a painting or a drawing. Take that first step. Don't think about step two, step three, or four. Go in with a child's mind and don't think about, but what if, but what if, and where's this going? Just, just do the thing. You know, life is short and some really important things will happen that are beyond your control that will take your time so when you have that opportunity, embrace the day, embrace this time you have to create and do it. And I just wanted to say that because I think we need to hear it. I need to hear it. <laughs> so I thought I'd share it with you. So that's all for updates. Before I get into the interview, I just wanted to mention that we cover a lot of subjects. We talk about artists and tools and so many things in this episode. So check out the notes and apps like Spotify and Overcast. Overcast is available on iOS as well as um, Mac OS, and they support clickable links. So what I do is I list all the links and you can click to them and, and see the product that we're talking about, find out where to buy them. If we're talking about a TV show, a movie, a subject, I link out to all of that. So if you're 
podcast player doesn't support that, you can go to the website, drawinginspiration.fm, and get to the links there. Or you can consider using a different podcast player that allows you to click on those links. So as you're listening to it, you can browse and things like that. But I, I go through a lot of effort trying to pull those links in because when I listen to a podcast and I hear something, it's like, oh, yeah, I have to go back. When I get home, if I'm driving or whatever the case, and I think I got to go back and check that link. So I include all of those there. They'll be there forever. And uh, I just wanted to highlight that we do cover a lot in this in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, here we go. I started following my guest on Instagram when I was investigating urban sketching a few years ago. I saw his work and thought, wow, this urban sketching thing looks like fun. and I really need to speak to this artist at some point. His ability to render scenes, cars, people, buildings, trees. It had me looking at the world around me completely differently and deconstructing these items in my head with the thought of rendering it on paper. His beautiful work has inspired so many others to take up urban sketching through his regular posts and tutorials on Instagram and now TikTok. If you thought rendering a car with a pen and some ink wash was magic, wait until you see his point of view drawings. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Paul Heaston. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good. How are you, Mike? Good. Thank you so much for being on. I've been a, a huge fan of yours for quite some time. I've had some of your colleagues, other urban sketchers, Merrick and France and, and all these other wonderful people on. And I've been eyeing you in the corner and it's like, I don't know if Paul's going to respond to me and come on to the to the show, but uh, I'm so thankful that you were, were able to connect and you're able to come on. Well, thank you for inviting me. And um, I've been aware of the podcast for a while now and uh, uh, not the least because of, you know, the guests that you've had and who I know pretty well. And so when you asked, I knew I wanted to do it, and it was just a question of um, you prodding me enough to get my sort of scheduling <laughs> stuff together. And uh, but yeah, typically um, I'm I'm pretty I'm, I'm a good um, a good guest and a, a pushover when it comes to it. So you know, I was doing the research, and uh, you know, I've done some urban sketching myself. I love working with ink, and uh, there's some of the stuff that you've talked about, and. Um, there's a kind of ink that I think I'm going to explore along with the urban sketching. And we'll talk about that later. But um, I didn't think of putting the two together until I was doing the research. And it's like, wait a second, I could combine these two things. But I'm going to leave it as a bit of a tease and then we'll circle back to that. <laughs> so I always like to talk about, and everyone who listens to the podcast knows I always start here, but understanding where you came from. Because I think part of especially being a creative, is it's often a solo activity. And so hearing other people's stories gives us an opportunity to to identify, to validate, to feel comfortable in taking a, a, a more windy road or a different journey. So I think it's always helpful to hear where people came from. And so I'm wondering, for you, were you always the artist? Were you always the creative growing up? You know, I mean, the answer to that is yes. I've been drawing and painting or doing various other sort of creative visual arts things since really early on and so i mean i think i was fairly certain that my life was going to kind of take that path i wasn't sure how and there were a few sort of dalliances later on side interests that threatened to kind of overtake the art interest but I think maybe in my heart of hearts I always knew I was going to come back to art in some way even if it uh, overlapped with those other interests because I was I'm really into music and it makes sense my mother is an artist and my dad is a musician 
neither neither one professionally, but um, and just in terms of what their interests always were, and the music stuff for me, at least in terms of playing an instrument, didn't come until much later. So I was a teenager, and I really wanted to learn to play the guitar because I was a teenager, and that's when a lot of the stuff my dad had already been sort of trying to to hit me with in terms of music started i had those forehead that forehead slapping moment of like oh now i understand what he was why you know what he's so passionate about but with art it was really young i i remember distinctly my my mom who worked i think at a an advertising agency at the time she had a big old legal sized pad of it was a pink paper like copy paper but it was pink and i guess they didn't need it at the office so she brought it home it was hundreds of it was like real thick and um and i just filled every page either she or my aunt susan taught me how to draw a nose and it was like like some curly cues kind of like a a three laying on its side um and i was obsessed with that visual trick from a very early age like four or five i thought that was ingenious and so i just was drawing people with these curly cue noses for you know just hundreds of little faces and um and really never stopped from that point i think i was just always drawing and so were you as as a kid were you inspired by by comics or movies or or the natural world like what was it that got you going you know i mean i must have been probably probably sort of animation and comics or at least comic strips at first and i don't think i was into comic books maybe until a middle school um, but I don't think I had a specific, I can't point to a specific influence or a, a, a sort of a cultural trigger for me in terms of, um, oh, I was really into, I do remember learning to draw Garfield. I do, I do think that was an early one, but I'd already been drawing for a while and there were some other, there, I don't know how common these were, but, uh, for everybody, but Lee J. Ames used to have these how to draw books and it was the the cliche circles and squares and then all of a sudden it's a horse you know <laughs> right <laughs> and i loved to check those out from the library but i would just skip the the construction part of it and just draw from the final image i would just copy the final image because i was like well i don't want to erase a bunch of stuff and so i'm just i'll skip that development part and i think it might have i might have gotten a little bit better quicker if i hadn't done that but <laughs> Um, I really just wanted the, you know, the, uh, the finished product and I wanted to skip over all the important parts of the learning process. Yeah, we had, I mean, I don't know your age, but I remember drawing, uh, Tom and Jerry. I mean, for me, that oh, was, yeah. that was a lot of fun. And I, I don't know if we, things are different now. Like there is, you know, my daughter was really interested in, um, in drawing she's uh, 16 now and she's for her it was anime mm -hmm. um so you know we don't have the newspaper sitting out and you know fireside and calvin and Hobbes and all this kind of stuff hanging out right yeah well it's so funny i have a six-year-old now and she's in love with calvin and Hobbes. um she found my old beat-up copies so i had to buy her a bunch of new ones because mine the spines were falling apart and um but I, I, that would, you know, I was a little older when Calvin and Hobbes was really popular. So I was born in the seventies too. So I was, 
so, but I do remember Calvin Hobbes or Bart Simpson learning how to draw a Simpsons character was a big deal. <laughs> and yeah, Garfield, I can still remember. I had the sense memory is still very, very, it's very close to the surface of the the specific lines in the specific order to draw Garfield, which is funny because it's not a strip I particularly care for anymore, but I think it was unassailable when I was five or six years old. It was the pinnacle of uh, comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So how did that follow you through as a matter of like into high school? um, Were were you still tapping that, that, that art vein as you were, proceeding forward and through education was that still a protected area for you that you needed you knew that you had to grow yeah it's that's a funny thing so I didn't I, I guess I was I want to I want to I don't want to say rudderless but I didn't know what I was really compelled to draw until middle school I had some friends who were really into comic books and so the x-men was really big and um a few other um, you know, and, and I didn't really like to read them, but I really did like to look at the art. And to this day, I still am terrible at actually spending time absorbing the storyline. Um, but, uh, really, really enjoyed the art. And I think Jim Lee was really big and Rob Liefeld and a few other people. And, um, and so my friends and I, we created a sort of, uh, our own, independent comic book label and we never really made an issue or anything like that but we we had this sort of fantasy and all we did was doodle our characters we would just design characters and pretend we would plug them into some kind of storyline or something at some point which never really happened but and so then in middle school I also saw this this PBS um, American PBS um, series called Voyage of the Mimi which was about studying whales. And I don't know what happened, but I checked out a bunch of library books on whales, and then I was just obsessed with drawing whales for a a, a good one or two-year period, right at the end of middle school. And, uh, And so, and then natural history and that kind of art became really interesting. So when I got to high school, also right around the beginning of high school is 92, 9192 I read before the movie came out I read Jurassic Park and and so I was like all of a sudden all these other interests I was finding reasons to make art because I okay I want to draw whales I want to draw dinosaurs I want to draw comic books and I didn't have I wasn't somebody who was like really interested in observational drawing or drawing anything around me but you know I was like I could exploit my interest in these things or I could further I don't know, I could further indulge my interest by drawing them. Like, okay, I love dinosaurs. And, you know, I had a friend, um, Jose Herrera, and he loved dinosaurs too. But it, 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 uh, it took its form in writing. And he was writing, like, science fiction stories about dinosaurs. But I was like, I got to draw dinosaurs. So, and I was really interested in, you know, natural history and stuff like that. And that was back when the sort of dinosaur renaissance was happening and, oh, they're warm-blooded and we know a lot more about their anatomy now and this and that. And so that became a big thing all through high school for me. So as you can tell, I was very popular in high school, (laughs) (laughs) sitting and drawing dinosaurs in the corner instead of playing sports or whatever else. Yeah, it's it's so funny. These these things have such an influence. I remember when I had Max Ulichny on and he was talking about that impact of Jurassic Park and I was a bit older, so I, I'm a little bit older than you, but um, 
I remember having that that having a huge impact. But it was so interesting when you talk about the whales because they had this flashback. And you know, I know killer whales aren't whales; they're dolphins. But I used to love drawing killer whales because for me they were like, you know, the shark plus the whale, right? Because they had the the big dorsal fin and uh, and oh, yeah. the humpbacks with their so much smarter, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, did you have a favorite whale that you used to draw a lot? Well, the voyage of the Mimi was about humpbacks, so I think I started there. But then we had to do a report on a whale, and I chose—I don't know if it was arbitrary or if it was a sinus, but we, I chose the gray whale. And so that became my de facto, that was my favorite after that. I was like, oh, the California gray whale, because they were endangered, and they were kind of, uh, you know, out on their own in terms of the whale families. They're not quite a, a baleen or whale, because they didn't have, like, the big throat pleats, mm-hmm. you know. But they're also not a toothed whale. They have baleen, but they just, you know, they were kind of weird. So um, I was like, oh, that's my... That's my thing. So I used to draw gray whales all the time, which uh, it's it's one of the least interesting whales. <laughs> I mean, people don't really, nobody talks about them. But, you know, and those kinds of things where it's like, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I don't know why, but I've over my life, I think I've gravitated towards those. I'm like, oh, okay, this is something that it's hard to make interesting. So that that's my goal. I'm going to see if I can make this interesting to myself and other people. But you just did, like in describing what a gray whale was and the difference, <laughs> right? Like it's, I'm drawing a gray whale. Please ask me about it because I have yeah. some really interesting facts, right? Oh, I should have had a shirt. Like, please ask, ask me about gray whales. <laughs> right. And and so, I sorry, I wanted to loop back to that because I just sure. I loved whales as a kid. But so, so with Jurassic Park, you're drawing dinosaurs and, um, you know, that that impacted so many of us in so many different ways. Did that kind of push you in a direction at that point or was it just kind of like your pop culture is like feeding you these subjects and you're just absorbing them and putting them down. Well, I mean, I thought that I wasn't convinced of the the economic viability of an art career at that point. Not that my parents were, they didn't discourage me. They were, you know, always very encouraging of all, all of my interests. I But I thought, okay, well, paleontology, that maybe this is what I'm really interested in. And drawing is just one little part of that interest. And uh, maybe I should go and study that. And then sort of midway through high school, even though I was still really into dinosaurs, uh, the music thing happened and I kind of was, art was sort of a back burner thing. I was taking the art elective in our, in high school. I took four years of high school art and an art history class in high school. And I was really, but I really, I, I wanted to learn guitar. I was into the Beatles. I was like, you know, <laughs> and it was one of those things too, where it was a secondary so my best friend at the time, Mike, and uh, and a few of my other friends, we all just sort of got into them at the same time, and I think it was Mike's was Mike was the impetus because a girl he liked was really into the Beatles. So <laughs> to be able to talk to her, he wanted to learn about the Beatles, and then we all just sort of followed suit, and then we all started a band, and after that, that was another legitimate just not just the Beatles, but learning an instrument and learning about music and everything that that sort of interest entails all of the you know learning about music theory my dad really you know he loves music theory and composition and um and he composes music for like high school band and and stuff like that or he was at the time and um and so that became really interesting to me and, and and learning more about the instrument and about 
music in general. Um, and art wasn't challenging me at the time, so it was hard to be really um, present in terms of my pursuit of, of art as a, a sort of my life's passion. And, and it was just something I did, but I didn't have any I don't know, real compulsion the way I was feeling about music sort of the second half of high school. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the way you talk about it, right? You you are applying the skill set that you had to draw whales and dinosaurs, but you're not talking about I was inspired by Monet or so and so. But when you're talking about music, it was like I'm I'm inspired by the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really hard as a teenager to like. No, I'm just going to create my on my own um, rather than, rather than looking up to this this figure that you know I could I could have everything I want and yeah. <laughs> and play music and have people cheer for me. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Yeah, and it's a funny thing. I'm I, I didn't even think about it that way, but really yeah, my art stuff at least early on was not inspired by artists so much as interests that were sort of tangential to art. But the music thing definitely was I guess you can't really otherwise be interested in music. It has to sort of come from the music that you like you know, and the musicians that make that music. So Yeah, it's it's almost that, I mean, when I look at your stuff now, it's like this whole idea of being like a, I, I don't know what you would call yourself, but like a visual documentarian started with mm-hmm. the whales and with the comics and your experiences in life, and you eventually came back to it now. That, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I can't remember, my wife Linda or somebody said something like, you're kind of relentless documenter of your life. <laughs> and it was, you know, and it, it, I started doing, I mean, we'll get to this later, I suppose, but I started doing those kinds of sketches, these uh, sort of sight unseen in terms of it was pre-social media or I wasn't, it was at the you know beginnings of social media, but I wasn't sharing that kind of artwork I was sharing. I also did big paintings and I was more interested in people seeing those because I still thought of, uh, sketchbook keeping as sort of art with the lowercase a and it was the you know that means to an end of developing an idea to something bigger and more important you know quote unquote rather than an end unto itself um, you know and obviously I think my philosophy has changed on that um, and so it wasn't even something I was sharing until Linda who was my girlfriend at the time was like uh, other people need to see this I, and to her credit she realized that it was more interesting I think than the the quote-unquote important work I was making, uh, you know, my paintings and, and those kinds of things. And she's like, no, this is, there's something really interesting happening there. And I, because I was nervous that anybody would be interested in the sort of the minutia and the banal details of my own personal life. I was like, no, paintings have to be about sublime universal subjects that we can all relate to and i didn't understand yet the sort of the universal is kind of found in those personal intensely sort of personal experiences um which is you know another way sort of my philosophy about art has changed i think since then uh, to, to sort of skip ahead to the meat and potatoes i i'm guessing of our of our conversation <laughs> but um yeah and we'll come back to that because i think that's an interesting exploration about um about the connection between uh, other artists and non-artists with your work. And um, so after high school, did you, did the music stick with you? Did you move into art as a degree? Like how did that kind of transition happen for you? So 
after high school, I, I went immediately to uh, a public university, University of Texas, San Antonio, which was closer to the house I was living in with my parents than my actual high school. It was across the street. So it was kind of a foregone conclusion <laughs> that I would be going <laughs> to that. So I would walk there. And um, the um, I think the mu- the idea of music theory and, and pursuing a music degree when I really just wanted to play guitar. So I, that seemed a little intimidating and maybe a little too much homework for me. And so I think reluctant, not reluctantly, but I wasn't um, sort of passionately pursuing an art major. And I didn't declare my major right away. I kind of took, I took a few courses. I remember my first year, I took like history and styles of jazz and I took an astronomy course and some other things that I had sort of these interests in, you know, outside of art. And then I took um, like a drawing one or a foundations level art class. And I think it was more the rapport I had with the instructor of that class and the camaraderie I had with the other people. And it was now I was with more people who were sort of my peers in terms of art and their appreciation of it and passion for it than in high school where it was one of many electives and I think a lot of people thought it was a gimme kind of class that they could kill an hour with you know in high school not all of us but you know some of the students in in the high school art classes whereas I think once I had gotten to uh, university it was a little bit more uh, people were genuinely interested in pursuing this you know in their life and I think that was what turned the tide for me was like, okay, I, I love the people here. And I thought, you know, and there wasn't really any camaraderie to like an astronomy class in a big lecture hall where, it, you know, the lights are out and you're just watching, you know, a lecture or some slides or something the whole time. And, and uh, I liked the history or the history and styles of jazz course a lot. Um, but mostly because I really enjoyed being able to listen to music while I was in a class. <laughs> and um, and I and it was one of those things I definitely considered. But it, it was also, it wasn't quite as full of people who were passionate about music so much. It was people who liked to listen to music. But I was like, oh, I'm passionate about making music too. And so I didn't find my peer group really in that scene. So the art thing, I think, felt the most natural. I think I... You know, that's what led me down. Okay, I'll get a Bachelor of Fine Arts and see what that, where that leads me. Interesting. So you did your BFA. Did you, was there areas that you were more focused in? Because I, I, I you know, they didn't teach urban sketching. So <laughs> no. And, you know, I still always doodled in notebooks and drew with pen and ink. And I think a lot of the pen and ink and the cross hatching stuff came from my copying comic books for sure. But, I'm the thing I was mostly early on, at least as a BFA student was, was taken by was, uh, sculpture. I really thought that was fun. We got to do woodworking. We got to do, uh, metalworking, uh, welding and, you know, um, well, big machines you got to operate and, and that sort of thing. And I thought that was really fun. And I took, um, quite a bit of sculpture classes and did some big, like almost monumental um, metal pieces that like more abstract, not super representational pieces, Um, you know, big welded plates of steel and stuff like that. And and I really enjoyed it. 
and and then I was like, but I had to take you had to take class in uh, each discipline, so you had to take painting and printmaking, and something else, you know, um, besides and ceramics, right, and uh, besides sculpture. So I took those, and the first painting class I took, I was like, okay, well this is kind of fun too. And then I think my second painting class, I really, I was like, okay, this is challenging, and but in a completely different way than sculpture. And also, I was I was coming up against the fact that I didn't have a car, and sculpture was really hard to move around, and um, <laughs> and and also the sculpture classes were ca- taught in a, a satellite campus. Uh, it was it was on the the grounds of the the university but it was about a mile away from the main cluster of buildings because there was a lot of there was a foundry there and all this stuff and so they didn't want it anywhere near the main buildings in case students started a fire or something so I, and well, I wasn't enjoying walking all the way over there all the time and um, and then the main art building had the, the painting uh, studios so I think I'd I don't know. It was gradual, but I sort of gradually changed my concentration to painting. And that's what I ended up getting my BFA in was painting. So you finished a BFA in, in uh, and with a specialty in, in, in painting. Did you, what did you do at that point? Did you move into a career? Did you continue on with education? What was that journey like? Well, so one of the, the key reasons that I was really interested in painting was one of my professors, Roxy McCloskey. Um, and she really kind of helped me sort of find those breakthrough moments when I was painting. I was learning to paint and was always really supportive and encouraging and best sort of bond or connection I think I had with any um, faculty when I was getting a BFA. And, and we're still friends. Um, and she helped me get a job after my BFA as a conservator, which was it, there was a firm in San Antonio where I grew up. Um, that did restoration and conservation of historic art. Most of it was like decorative art, like on buildings or, you know, like if it was like a frieze, uh, you know, a sculptural frieze or something on the the exterior of a historic building or some decorative painting, some plaster, uh, fresco work. Um, So immediately out, out, out of college, started working with this, group and it was all contract based because they were they would seek contracts from whatever entity needed some restoration work done so i think our first uh, employer was uh, the archdiocese of san antonio the catholic archdiocese and we were restoring um, these historic ceiling panels for the san fernando cathedral which is a 300 year old cathedral in the center of san antonio and they were so damaged, water damaged and smoke damaged over the years that really what we were doing was reconstructing them, but we had to use as similar a palette, you know, as what were originally used. It was these faux coffered panels. They looked sort of, it's, it's hard to describe, but, and we used stencils and we did these pouncing brushes and blah, blah, blah. And, and we had to match the colors really well. And, uh, and it was a fun job, and I was working with a couple of other BFA graduates um, that I knew pretty well. And um, we worked in a studio, and it was about six months for that job. And then we got to go to this, you know, um, 
the cathedral where the panels had been installed and see them, and it was really a really cool thing. And then we worked for the national parks doing uh, conservation analysis of uh, Mission San Jose, which is an even older building in San Antonio. San Antonio is quite a bit of history. Um, it's uh, really an old, old city, and it's rare to see such old buildings that far from the East Coast in the U.S. because it had uh, has all these you know Spanish colonial um, ties. Um, so we were doing that, and then and then work would slow down for a while or dry up and there weren't many jobs to do and then at some point I did a a remote job with just one of the the other team members we went to Brownwood Texas which is about 250 miles away from San Antonio I stayed in a hotel and we were restoring uh, a Harvey house which was this these old historic train depots used to often have a, a house attached to them that had like a dining room dining hall and I think maybe some rooms to stay in. So, you know, when people used to travel by train, you know, you could just stay right at the train station. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of connected to the train depot. And it was this big historic building. Um, and it was Art Deco. And the interior of the big dining hall had these beautiful Art Deco fresco um, paintings. They're just abstract wall decorations. But at some point, they had walled off part of that big hall and turned it into a walk-in freezer. And so they had put spray foam insulation on all the walls. And when they tore it all off, all of the old historic fresco was damaged or destroyed. And so we had to recreate it exactly as they had done it, you know, a hundred years ago. Or well, now it's about a hundred years ago, but back then it was, was this 20, 20 years ago. Um, So uh, and that was a really cool job, and we really had to learn about color theory and matching colors on location. We used to we had to do conservators' techniques of cleaning. We would clean stuff with something called Lasco soap, which is the kind of solution that they had used to clean the cave paintings in Lasco. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know cleaning things painstakingly with Q-tips for hours and hours and hours on end. And it was in a big unheated because they were also replacing the windows. They were con- restoring the whole building. And, um, and so it was a big unheated room <laughs> and we were up on scaffolding, you know, cleaning the walls <laughs> a square inch at a time. And then for a, a long time, work just dried up. There weren't very many contracts available. Uh, the, the firm that I was working for didn't have work for me and it paid really well, especially for a job out of college. And, um, and I thought about, well, could I go and do conservation work in another part of the country or go somewhere else where there's other, you know, there's more opportunities. But I took a job scoring standardized tests um, for uh, a company, a publishing company that they score, they, they grade the written portions of standardized tests. And all you have to have is a college degree and then they'll train you. And then you sit in front of a computer monitor for eight hours a day. And these scanned test questions come in front of you and you have a little scoring rubric and you read what do third graders have to say about the civil rights movement or something like that? And then you score their response to a prompt or something like that, like on a scale of one <laughs> to five. Anyway, and I did that for a while, um, waiting for work to come along. And then I, w- I was at, I, this is a, I remember this turning point. I was at a party with some friends of mine and we were having, I don't know what happened, but the discussion turned to art history and art theory. And I don't know what we were talking about, but, I got into a really 
not a heated discussion, but a very animated discussion about art theory and what I thought and the kind, you know, my ideas about painting. And my friend Ed was like, you should go to grad school because I feel like you're a teacher. <laughs> He's like, you really, you really talk about things in a way that people understand. You really get under the, under the subject and explain it really well. And, and the best way to go and teach you know, you shouldn't be teaching high school. You should be teaching at the college level. And it's like, yeah, I got to go and get an advanced degree to do that. And he said, and here's the deal. If you go, I'm going to go and get my law degree. And so we made a pact that, like, if I went to graduate school, if I applied, he would apply to law school. And so we each of us did, and he ended up getting a law degree, and I ended up getting an MFA. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to go. I just wanted to get out of Texas and see you know, the rest of the, the country. And I applied to a few places. I applied to UCLA um, rather ambitiously, which has a great MFA program, but maybe even now is a little outside of my wheelhouse. It's very conceptual and, you know, and and very highly rated. And, uh, and a few other places. And one of the places I got into was Montana State University, where my professor, Roxy McCloskey, grew up in Bozeman, Montana. And I told her, hey, I got into this school. I'd gotten into another school too. I think it's University of New Mexico. And um, and she said, well, my brother lives there and he has a third story, like an attic apartment that you could live in if you moved there. And then they also offered me a teaching assistantship. And I think that sealed the deal. I was like, okay, so I have a place to stay immediately. Because the line for the waiting list for graduate housing was like almost a year long. And and so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't convinced I could stay there because Bozeman didn't have a lot of, it's not a huge town, so it didn't have a lot of housing opportunities. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I was like, that's remote and it has a real winter, <laughs> which I think... As you as a Canadian can understand, like mm-hmm. that was a real departure for me from South Texas where it had snowed once in my lifetime in San Antonio. So I was, you know, I was kind of jazzed about this would this be a little bit of culture shock and that would be fun. Um, and it was, you know, it's semi-rural Montana, mountains everywhere, no mountains where I was from. And, um, you know, some crazy winter weather. It's about six months of winter. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I was like, cool, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I think I'm going to have fun and uh, ended up going there. So uh, that was about three years from by graduating with a BFA to entering graduate school. So I had a sort of three year gap of working and trying to make a living first as an artist and then uh, scoring standardized tests. <laughs> That's cool. And so did the f the mfa kind of confirm that you're not doing things like standardized tests anymore that you need yeah. to <laughs> pursue this and I, I don't know like what is the time point between let's say when you completed your mfa to those um those oil paintings that you were doing those large large scale pieces was that something that grew out of that mfa did that kind of like I, i'm gonna go make art now mm-hmm. yeah well so it's a three-year program, and not all MFA programs are like that. But at the time, see, now there are doctorates in studio art. There weren't many, if if any. Uh, this was 2005 when I entered grad school. So the MFA was the terminal degree for studio art. 
if you were an art historian, then you would go on and get you could get a PhD or something like that. Um, and I think maybe Yale or a handful of other places did offer a PhD in studio art. But as a as a terminal degree, they made you go for three years, where a lot of other master's programs are two. So um, because they thought, well, then to make it more prestigious, I don't know, like you have to go to school for three years. And your final year is a thesis year where you're basically you're not taking any credits anymore. You're just sort of devoted to creating a body of work. And then you have a thesis exhibition. At least that's how it was structured at, at Montana State University. So I go there and I'm painting my portraits, which was I didn't talk about this, but what I had done for my BFA was mostly portraiture. So it was like figurative painting and faces and things like that of my friends. And uh, and I was like, and that that portfolio was what got me into um, my MFA program. So I thought, well, this is what they want to see from me. So I started doing those. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I've, I think I've exhausted this subject. I'm like, how do I make this more interesting? And some of the painters I was really interested in in terms of portraiture, Alice Neal, Chuck Close, uh, Philip Perlstein, figurative, 20th century figurative painters, Wayne Tebow. And I was like, okay, so maybe what I had done for my BFA show was these big monumental six foot tall faces, like Chuck Close style. Uh, and I did three big panels on just a full sheet of, you know, plywood. What I also liked was I'd seen it Chuck Close retrospective in Houston and I liked how he break, broke down the image into these little tiles. And I was like, what could I do with these little tiles of imagery and stuff like that? So I was doing these little four inch by four inch portraits and I did like a hundred of them. This was my first year. I was like, I'm trying to find anything, some, some kind of direction or some kind of point to jump off of. And, uh, and I was, these little tiles, I had a bunch of them by the end of the semester and my committee you know, that when you're in graduate school, some MFA programs, I think, at least, you not only you take credits with professors, but you also select a group of three of them to be on your graduate committee. Um, and then the fourth member is the director of the graduate program. And we, um, you know, and they were uh, not super enthusiastic about it, but they, they were, you know, very polite and they liked that work, I guess. And, uh, you know, which to, you know, to their credit, I don't think I'd have been as polite because it wasn't really going anywhere and I didn't know what to do with it. So the next semester I started turning them into, I really liked woodworking and going back to the sculpture thing. And I really liked making kinetic pieces and pieces you could touch and pieces you could move. And I hadn't married that to the idea of painting yet, but I was like, well, how can I do this? Because I'm now I'm kind of cemented in my my concentration because you get into an MFA program based on your portfolio. So they kind of expect, okay, you're a painter, you're a portrait painter. This is what you will be doing. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't suddenly start making sculptures, you know, <laughs> at least not without massaging the committee a little bit. And so I started making little games that were painted. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with like these little sliding, the sliding tile puzzles, the little 15 puzzle mm -hmm. where you have to get all the numbers in order. Um, or there, you know, there's a little, little stocking stuffer type things or dollar store things where it's just a little, some nine plastic tiles. And then if you get them all in order, there's an image that reveals itself. Right. And I thought, okay, that would be fun to do as an oil painting. So I got a few of those and took them apart and kind of sort of deconstructed them and reverse engineered. And it's like, how could I make this, but make it, you know, oil on panel. 
and I made a little nine tile, actually eight tile, because you have to have one tile missing so you can slide the pieces around. Sliding tile puzzle of a portrait of a friend of mine. And then I did some other ones where it's like, okay, I always like the books where like the face changes, you know, it's like cut in half or cut into sections so that the expression can change if you turn, you know, the right flap or something like that. Uh, little kids books and things like that. And I was thinking, okay, that'd be a fun painting idea too. So I did some turning panels, not unlike those bean bag toss tic-tac-toe games you see on playgrounds or something, you know, with like these little triangular tiles that spin on a little column or little tube. And I was like, okay, that'd be a fun painting, you know, and it's really three paintings depending on how you, you turn the tiles. And there were nine tiles. And so I did that and I did a few other you know, paintings based on that. And I think the reception was a lot more enthusiastic. People really liked the idea of sort of kinetic art, like paintings that you could touch. And I, and I even sort of, you know, I played up the idea that plus they're ephemeral because, you know, as people handle them, you know, things will happen to them and they're going to, you know, like the oils in people's hands are going to, you know, the paintings are going to deteriorate and blah, 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 which is really cool MFA talk, you know, <laughs> like, Oh yeah, they're you know they have this artifacture of ha- having been handled, and you know there's a, hist- a human patina or something. Yeah, exactly on. right, and it's like <laughs> it's a palimpsest, it's a layer cake of various you know. Anyway, so people were enthusiastic, except for the director of the program. Um, he didn't. He thought it was kind of gimmicky, and I can see where he's coming from, because like the subject matter wasn't all that particularly interesting, but the idea. I thought was kind of compelling, but what I was painting pictures of, like he was like, well, what relationship does this have to the idea of a puzzle or a game or something that you move with your hands? And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't answer that question. And um, I mean, it was a good question. And he was, I think he was probably right that it was, you know, it's not, it it wasn't that it wasn't interesting and that people didn't, because people were really excited to see them, you know, in a gallery space or whatever, people would really want to come on touch stuff. And that was sort of a, a cheat, really, because uh, as an art student, I learned there's lots of cheats. Like, for instance, if you put a lot of text in a painting, people will look at it longer <laughs> because they're reading, you know. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's a cheat, right? It's like, okay, you know, when in doubt, make it big and make it red is another sort of a, a, a an old <laughs> an old saw of the the, the MFA painting world, and. Um, and and this was definitely one of those. It's like, okay, well, you can't, if you're invited to touch something, people are not going to be able to resist it. But does that mean there's really anything there? And, you know, so I was having doubts. But at the beginning of my, let's see here, my fourth semester, um, so there's two years where you're taking credits, and then there's a, a third year or two semesters of thesis show development and then exhibition. So right before my thesis, I went to Italy and did a semester abroad. Um, and so this is the is that 2007. Yeah, so the spring of 2007, so 15 years ago. And I couldn't really bring my studio practice with me because it involved having access to a workshop and making you know things that would, and then also oil paint and... It just wasn't practical, and we were going to be, the first portion of the semester, we we're going to be traveling around Italy to various locations, and Sicily, and, and doing, you know, 
and I was the lone graduate student. There were 17 undergrads, and then there were two professors. And what I didn't anticipate happening was that, A, I would become the, the, the chaperone for the undergrads <laughs> because the professors would do anything they could to kind of once class or instruction was over, they were like, okay, y'all are on your own. And these are Montana, uh, University of Montana students. It's, Montana is an interesting place because about half the students had never left the state and the other half like had summer homes in Europe you know it was like it was like <laughs> a mixture weird. yeah it was a mixture of like coming from you know wealthy families and from like rural agricultural communities and so and i was the only one who had really bothered to study the the Italian dictionary. And so it was, it was like, can you buy our bus ticket? Can you buy our bottle of wine or whatever it was? So I became sort of, I was leading them around. And my, my professor, Sarah Mast, who was, she was on my committee and she was also one of the professors on the Italy trip. Um, she suggested to all of us, but to me in particular, she's like, keep a travel journal. And right at that moment, moleskins were really starting to surge in popularity they had just come sort of come back i think chronicle publishers are you know were making them and you you would walk into any you know chain bookstore and there was always this round turntable of moleskins at the front and uh, she's like buy a moleskin and keep a little travel journal and you can sketch and you can write your experiences so i bought a moleskin and i was like i thought about 50 percent of it would be writing like sort of sort of reflecting on my time there and i was like i've got to do something productive with this semester since i can't paint and then the other would be drawing and i wasn't sure how that would take shape my drawings at that point were people sitting for portraits or drawings development drawings for my paintings which were mostly painted from photographs but here i am i'm like i don't have a way to look at photographs i didn't have an ipad or you know or even a smartphone at the time it was 07 so I, um, so I was like, well, I have to draw what I see. <laughs> you know, it's like back to the fundamentals, back to the stuff I, you know, I learned ostensibly how to do, but wasn't really practicing in any way. So that's what I started doing. And I really, the, the writing portion dropped off. I really wasn't writing much after the first week or so, but I was drawing, I was drawing the students. I was drawing the places we'd go, like if we were on a ferry um, or we were, you know, on an airplane or we were in, um, you know, waiting for a bus or something like that and just whatever I saw. Um, and one of the things, of course, there's a lot of in Italy is really gorgeous architecture. And, um, I, you know, I had taken perspective, I think in high school and college. And it was just one of those things like did my sort of perfunctory time doing those perspective exercises and they didn't, you know, it, they weren't challenging necessarily, but they also weren't interesting for me. And so I was like, I had to recall sort of what I'd learned about perspective. I was like, I'd never really drawn buildings before, or even, you know, interested in buildings as art at all. Because um, my portraits and all the previous work I'd done were kind of, they existed in this very shallow space with these sort of colors behind them rather than in a real volumetric space where I had to think about... Um, you know, the surroundings, the context of the figure. So I, it was, that was a, a real challenge for me. And, uh, and that's, 
that's basically where it all sort of started was figuring out that challenge and that became a, a compulsion sort of unto itself was like okay this is a lot of space there's a lot of information here it's all in front of me you know and it, it, it became the sort of task of having to conquer this amount of information especially it was like all these baroque or classical you know all the filigree and all the ornament that's on all of these italian buildings was like you know really a trial by fire (laughs) so that's interesting that you know you went through all of that and you know you mentioned the artists earlier and i'll just take this point in time to say that anything you've spoken about including those artists and anything else we talk about will be in the show notes so i do encourage you if you're listening to this and you can't get to a computer or you can't pull out your phone or whatever the case I'll include links to all of this, uh, links to Wikipedia and, and so on and so forth, so that uh, it's going to be a great resource when you're done listening to the show. But um, I think it's interesting that, once again, you moved away. I mean, you, you, you've you got your art history. Um, you, you've understood styles. And it's like, okay, that I'm good. Now I'm going to go do the document documentarian thing and, and you know be part of this trend that urban sketching didn't really exist at that point, right? Well, I mean, it did and it didn't. The community wasn't really there. I think, you know, people for, you know, centuries had been doing it, and many of them had just sort of been doing it completely in sort of in in a vacuum. And that's such an interesting sort of second half of this story is why I kind of continued to do that, because I still had had my thesis year ahead of me. The urban sketching stuff, I brought it home. I, I felt like half dozen sketchbooks while I was there. I had to buy more moleskins and other sketchbooks because I was I was just going through them. But it didn't manifest itself in the work I was doing for my th- I thought, okay, well, I've already sort of laid out this course for myself. And what it ended up doing was these large, not quite life-size, to kind of create a little bit of distance, but almost life-size, uh, full-figure paintings, portraits of um, the people that I was sort of close with. So there is a little bit of a relationship because it was sort of a self-portrait by proxy in that the, these were the people I was most sort of closely associating with at the time. So it was all my friends in the, the graduate studios and um, my parents, actually just my mother. I didn't do my dad. I, I, he, I had plans to. I ended up doing 14 of these large-scale paintings. But... Um, and that was as many as I could sort of do in that given sort of, you know, it's two semesters, but it was really about four months of work that I could do. And in the meantime, I was keeping a sketchbook in Montana, um, just sort of for my own purposes. Just it was, it was enjoyable. It was the best way to sort of de-stress and pass the time. And it was really helping my visual acuity, my ability to to understand space and, and um, I mean, I was getting sort of the training that I think I had missed or skipped or just ignored as an undergrad and a graduate student in terms of observational drawing. And I was teaching observational drawing all through graduate school. I had to teach drawing. So I was still lifes and we would go out and we practice our landscapes and all this stuff. And here I was, you know, talking about stuff and I was like, I'm not, you know, I hadn't ever really, really done it at least you know, really engaged with the idea until I started keeping that sketchbook. And then it was like, I've got to really look. And and it was just so 
entertaining for me. And it was, you know, the painting was fun, but the challenges weren't the same and it wasn't where my heart was. So I did continue. I painted a little bit after I, I graduated with my MFA and I stayed in Montana for a year teaching as an adjunct faculty member. But I did three paintings following my MFA. Still to this day, three paintings. <laughs> um, after doing hundreds. And what I, instead I did was I started setting up little sort of urban sketching assignments for myself. And one of them was to draw Bozeman, Montana, where I lived, a town of about 30,000 people, and um, has a little downtown that's five blocks long of historic buildings, you know, brick and, and you know, 100-year-old, just beautiful old Western facades. I mean, just gorgeous. And I loved spending time down there. So I thought I had seen the artist Ed Ruscha had done a photography project called All of the Buildings on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, where he had he'd walk down the, the street, the Sunset Strip, and take a photo of all of the facades opposite him, and then walk a little further down the block and take another photo, and then walk a little further. And then he kind of collaged them all together, and then he crossed the street and you know did the same thing. And he had them in a little accordion-style book. He kind of printed them. One side of the street was printed upside down so that you would flip the book to look at, you know, the north side. And then, you know. And I just thought the idea of documenting the street in Bozeman, you know, every building on that sort of five-block stretch from one side of the street and then crossing and, and sketching every building uh, from, you know, the other side of the street... I thought that would be a really fun project and it would be a sort of a way to make urban sketching but also an art piece. Um, and, you know, at that time, I think I was still like, oh, okay, it's got to be some kind of a piece or a project or, you know, something like that. And um, so I found a, a panoramic, a little panoramic pocket sketchbook and I did it um, um, basically... A spread at a time in each you know and I didn't do normally I work across a spread or at least at this time I was working across the spread of a sketchbook so basically front and back every page was covered with drawings really not easy to remove a drawing without marring another you know drawing in the sketchbook and no way to really hang them up because they're all stitched in these different little signatures and so you can't you know anyway which um you know, Linda, my my girlfriend at the time, and my, now my wife was really like, "Hey, um, <laughs> you know, you can't really show your work this way um, unless people flip through this, the sketchbook." But uh, I was still like, "No, the sketchbook is the piece; it's the art." You know, so I did it all on one side, and you know, and then you turn the page, and it would be all on one side. Well, no, I did it across the, now, now that I think about it, I did it across the gutter, but then I skipped a page so that each spread could be removed and, and if you cut them out carefully. Okay. I don't know what I was, like, I was anticipating maybe I'll scan them or something. And, and that took a few months to really finish that project. But I really, I learned a lot of things. And one of the things that was kind of new for me was figuring out some things about perspective that I hadn't anticipated uh, having to think about and that that that's because the first spread I drew the buildings the way most people would which is that there's like five or six little storefronts 
in front of me. And so I made the bottom where the buildings meet the sidewalk horizontal and the top line of the buildings, I made those all horizontal also, and all the edges of the buildings vertical. But the next spread had the tallest building in Bozeman in it, which is the Baxter Hotel, which is, I think it's seven or eight stories. And to fit it in, I had to make everything smaller um, because I didn't want to cut it off. You know, I didn't want it to extend off the top of the page. So to get the entire facade of the, the Baxter Hotel, the rest of the buildings off to the right, kind of extending down the street, had to be that much smaller. And as they extended down the street, I realized, well, if at the scale they have to be to fit the Baxter in, they're going to, you know, they're going to taper off into a vanishing point. But I was like, well, how do I do that? Because I can't make the whole thing... I couldn't make it into this sort of triangular composition. It just didn't make any sense for the Baxter Hotel. But I thought, well, if I curve it, I'd seen panoramic photos. Um, And I also remember my mom, when she would take pictures of, like, the Grand Canyon or something, snapshots, she would then collage all the the photos together in the photo album. And you would see things like the guardrail would curve, you know, up towards the horizon at either end. It would... You know where where it was headed towards the vanishing points, you know on your left and on your right, um, and I knew enough about perspective to know okay this is you know one way of thinking about it is this sort of panoramic look. So that's what I did in that in that spread is I kind of curved the building facades so they tapered out at the at the end, but they were more or less at the, in the center of the composition they were still horizontal, and. And the next spread, I went back to, you know, the first approach I had, you know. But then I was thinking, well, really, I am seeing quite a bit of my field of view when I sketch these buildings. And if I look to my left and look to my right, the buildings just aren't as high because they're further away from the center of my field of view. They're just not as tall over there and over there on my right and my left. So maybe I should just have this arc you know, along the top edge of the buildings and also maybe a little shallower arc where the buildings meet the sidewalk in each one of these, you know. And it started to make more and more sense as I went along. And there's 24 spreads in all, so 12 on each side of the street. And by the end, I was just, you know, I was really comfortable doing that and it made sense to me. It was like, yeah, it's a panoramic drawing, kind of like a panoramic photo. Mm -hmm. And I had seen it i i couldn't really think of where i'd seen those kinds of approaches and then you know i think somebody said oh yeah kind of you know escher does that stuff and i was like oh yeah i've seen escher's work and yeah he did that and and other people were like yeah like panoramic photography or like uh, google street view and i was like oh yeah because that had just started to appear at that time was google earth and google street view and of course those were these 360 panoramic photos that you can kind of pan around and if you zoomed out a little bit you could see the the kind of curvature that was happening in those and i was like yeah that's yeah i guess so well at around this time maybe even before this project had started i was saying to you that i was kind of doing these sketches sight unseen well after i graduated linda was like you need to start putting the drawings up for people to see online at the time it wasn't really like Facebook and Instagram and those places weren't really there yet. But uh, Flickr was a really popular site for uploading mostly photography. Um, but there were some artist communities 
in Flickr, and, and I was uploading my paintings to Flickr at first, and and she said, put your drawings on there. I think people really like them. So I started uploading, you know, my Italy drawings and the stuff I'd been doing in Montana after I got back, um, including that project. And somewhere in there, uh, Gabby Campanario, um, uh, the founder of Urban Sketchers, um, but not at this point. At this point, he was just another sketcher uploading work to Flickr. I don't know if I just tagged something correctly or what, but he found some of my work, some of my drawings uh, I had done in Italy. And he said, well, I've got a little group here on Flickr where people post their drawings of, you know, their sketches of their environment or their travel sketches or whatever. And it, it was, the group was called Urban Sketchers. And he's like, you should post some on this in this group. And in that group were a bunch of sort of the early urban sketchers, Liz Steele and Jason Dawes and um, Gabby and myself and, oh, so many people I'm trying to, you know, I can't remember all the names, but, and, um, and it was a fun little community and it was really cool to see that other people had been doing all these things just like me and some of them had been doing them for a long time before they'd ever engaged with a community of people with the same interests and I'd only really just started, but I, you know, it made sense that people would have been doing these things forever, just that there wasn't really a way to connect to other people. But, you know, here's a website where, you know, if you use the right hashtag or you just, you label things, people can find you and figure out, oh yeah, you have the same interest that I do. Um, and there were hundreds of people, and then there were thousands of people, and it became a blog. <laughs> Gabby said, okay, let's I'm going to have a blog, um, and and he invited us to be correspondents on the blog, and then it became, well, let's get together and have like a symposium, or at least, you know, let's all sketch together in one spot, um, and, and also, you know, um, so he, that was the first symposium in Portland, the Urban Sketching Symposium, but also, um, which I did not go to. I wish I had, but I was not able to get the time off of work. I had moved from Montana back to Texas at that point. And um, the um, the other thing it became was this nonprofit with an educational mission. Um, and this idea that because the barriers to entry are so low to be an urban sketcher, as opposed to like the plein air oil painting community or the watercolor community, where... Not only do most of them have a very traditional academic background, but also, like, you know, you can invest thousands in oil painting supplies. And I had done that, you know. Um, you know, a nice French easel plus, like, 50 or so paints at $25 each for a tube of paint. Mm -hmm. You know, it adds up. And then constantly, you know, another $20 canvas every day or something like that. So um, all you need for urban sketching is something to sketch on and something to sketch with you know so pencil pen piece of paper really and and what gabby was finding out was that people the world over could really contribute and communicate about their place their environment um without an artistic background even because i mean you had people like me who are more sort of formally trained i you know i hesitate to say it I was that trained, but um, I came from an art education background. And then there were architects, 
Um, Gabby is a, you know, an illustrator, cartoonist for the Seattle Times. Uh, and then there were people who were complete novices who had day jobs and who'd always just wanted some kind of creative outlet and sketching made sense. It appealed to them and they didn't have any kind of, uh, specific training, but they, some of them have done, you know, the most compelling and memorable work I think I've seen in the community. It's just everybody's approach was so different and it embraced every sort of, you know, aptitude for sketching from those who are, you know, sort of highly refined and technically accomplished to those people who were about communicating their place and, and this sort of reportage style of like, this is what I saw today, sketching. And it was, it was everybody was included in all ages. And the only thing was like, you have to draw from observation out in the world, you know, you can't draw your coffee table at home or something like that. But, but other than that, like, it was just about being out and sketching your surroundings. And it just grew and grew and grew. He maxed out on the number of correspondents he could have on the blog. I think he, at, at, hun- at 100 correspondents. Wow. Um, and then he, the idea, well, let's put a book together. And then now it's been, I don't know, a dozen books um, in the Urban Sketching series. It's um, And the symposiums have grown from, you know, Fewer than 100, I think, at the first, to thousands, literally thousands. Um, the last one was in Amsterdam, which I did not go to, but I was at the previous one in um, Porto, in Portugal. Uh, and what has happened is it become a little bit like Sturgis, the motorcycle rally, where, <laughs> like, up, you know, the registrations for the workshops, there's I don't know how many instructors, like 30 instructors and, and 30 workshops. So each instructor teaches three workshops and... But anyway, all the tickets sell out, so the, the 800 or 900, you know, available tickets for the workshops are gone. But then other people who just want to be around sketching, they just sort of descend into the community. <laughs> and and there's just sketchers everywhere. And you just walk around Porto, and literally every corner, every alley, every storefront, there would just be people scribbling in their moleskins and, you know, on their little camp stools. And um, it's really amazing because there were people who had been doing it before they knew there was you know a community and that they fit right in and then the people discovering they could do it um and every year that number grows and grows and grows because um it really is such a welcoming um and sort of non-judgmental space for people of you know different you know sets of skills to come together and it's all because it, you're telling your story. You're telling the story of your place, and that's what's so fun about it. And um, you know, and that's where the appeal is for me. Even absent the community, if there was no community, I'd probably still be doing this because I definitely was before I was showing it to people online. Um, it was the idea of just sitting and documenting, as I was saying earlier, relentlessly documenting. And not everybody maybe has the level of um, whatever it is that I have. But um, but some people are, you know, even, <laughs> even more um, passionate than I am. I've met a few of them, you know. And um, it's just so fun to see all those people come together. Because I do have tangential relationships with people in those the plein air painting communities or you know the academic portrait and figurative communities and the people who do you know 
wonderful figure and life drawings and stuff like that. And, and I still like to try those things, but they are definitely, they're a little bit more insular. They're a little more elite and not necessarily in a good way. They're not, you know, as inclusive and they definitely sort of demand um, a narrower uh, a sort of range of skill sets. That urban sketching, I think, is a little bit more, I don't know, it's, to me, it's it's been the most fun community to engage in, in, in terms of all the sort of art communities that I now sort of overlap with. I mean, the, the social media for me, too, this is almost a separate thing. I don't understand it. I don't know why, me of all people, you know, like, it's sort of blown up, and, and, that's another, I can, you know, I can't take credit for it. Linda was like, now you need to get on Instagram. When Instagram showed up, she's like, start putting your work there. And I just, you know, the smartest decision I've ever made is to just listen to whatever she says. So she said, go on Instagram. And then she got me on TikTok last fall. And now I'm on TikTok, you know, and, and that community has been really awesome. But it's, there's a, an overlap between the urban sketching community that I've started out with and because I, I do a lot of these sort of domestic drawings, like my everyday life. So there's the Danny Gregory Everyday Matters community, you know, where is where it's, where it's the idea is wherever you are, whatever you're doing, a drawing a day is, you know, the idea. Um, and so I draw my kids and my wife and my desk and my living room and my closet. You know, I mean, there's no hierarchy of subject matter for me. Um, you know, I've drawn my garage maybe close to a hundred times. And then something about my style, which, you know, not everybody in our, there's lots of watercolorists and there's some oil painters and urban sketching, but I'm black and white, very pen and ink oriented graphic style kind of person. So there's a lot of overlap between, I think the people who like me and then the people who are part of this, the illustration community. And then recently I went to a conference in Los Angeles that was the VizDev community, which is the visual development community. It's called the CTN, Creative Talent Network Expo. And so I met a lot of people in animation and in game design and character design. And uh, the idea for me being there, I was told sort of by um, the people who run that exhibition or that expo, is that a lot of people in, in game development and animation and whatever... The, the emphasis is on character design. They love drawing characters, right? But not mm -hmm. the world building is just as important, but it's an underdeveloped skill for a lot of these people. And and so they, they always say, oh, go to figure drawing and that'll help you get better at your character design. And, you know, they so they do practice that observational skill set. But what they don't do is like go and draw inside a coffee shop. And what does the real world look like? You know, because then the, when they get in front of a computer or in front of their drawing board, and they have to design the real world, they don't have a lot of real-world observational sketching references to draw from. So it's much harder for them to come up with something believable, a space that you can really imagine um, living in or occupying for the time being in a video game or in an uh, um, animated you know, cartoon or something like that. And so I think that was the reason I was invited to go, was to say, hey, this is another skill you can hone um, and it really lends itself to, you know, this industry. Um, so yeah, it's been crazy just 
the the kinds of people I've gotten to know now through social media, not just the Arabic sketching community, but all of these other cool little avenues that now I want to explore. I have to say that I I discovered urban sketching before the pandemic, and I was able to join with uh, the local community here, and it was incredible. It was such a fantastic experience, and uh, being able to to hang out with these people. I only think I went to one or two, and then the pandemic hit mm-hmm. us. And uh, I, I sat in, I remember doing... Um, I had Captain Tom on the podcast, and we sat in my pickup truck um, looking towards Parliament Hill here in Ottawa, and I had my microphone set up in the truck, and we were both sitting there in my truck sketching uh, the hill in the winter. Um, and so it was just a beautiful way to kind of spend the day with somebody, right? And uh, uh, th- as I said, the pandemic hit, and it all fell apart. But I- I've been really kind of... Um, so interested in this community. Like I, I, I went to a, a junkyard uh, last fall that had a car that was possessed. So I was told not to touch the car <laughs> because people have, have gotten hurt if they've touched this oh, car. Wow. And it was like, I got to draw the car. <laughs> wow. But I, I wanted to ask you, like, because um, your feed, like if you are listening to this and you haven't checked out Paul's feed, you have to check it out because it is just, it's incredible. And you talked about, that thing you made with the uh, the nine well eight panels that you slide around you've got a great mm-hmm. video and I'll link directly to that of of how that works but your work is is just fantastic and I wanted to ask you um, maybe we can jump into some of the the skill bits around this and, and the tools of the trade and that kind of thing sure. but maybe you can speak to at this point in time what is your favorite kit with regard to uh, are you still using a moleskin and you know, we see you using the food aid, um, a fountain pen with a food aid nib. So, mm-hmm. if people don't know what that is, it is really like a fountain pen nib that that's bent at like forty-five or fifty degrees. And so, if you can talk about that, and the other question I have around that, if you're talking about your kit, is do you do pencil first or you go straight to ink? Sure. Yeah. So I'll talk about what I'm carrying now, and it just it, it's evolved over time, um, and there's always some kind of new thing I always want to try and, and oh what you know what what can this do I'll see somebody else online like the other day uh Suhita Saradkar was doing something with this cool Japanese nib it's a round dip nib uh and I had to buy it so I bought it and I have I've yet to really get to play with it but um I'm about to but yeah so my current kit is a fude pen um, and that I got introduced to in Manchester at, at an urban sketching symposium. And Alvin Wong gave me a gift. He's an ur- urban sketcher's Hong Kong, Alvin Wong. He gave me a gift of a Hero M86 Fude pen. And instant love with this pen. And I had been, I'd seen other sketchers trying fountain pens. And I'd been really trying to get into it. I said, there must be something there, because people are really into it. But I had gotten a, a Lamy Safari and a handful of other cheap pens. I, the Lamy Safari is great, but I hadn't quite gotten the hang of it at that point. And I didn't understand why is this better than, say, a, a Pigma Micron pen or the Statler Pigment Liner or something like that, and which were, those were my favorite pens. And it was right away with the Fude, just the weird line qualities you can get just by the angle that you're holding the pen 
you can get these super fat, chunky lines. You can get these thin, narrow lines. And then turning the pen upside down gets you even thinner line. And some, but it's not entirely predictable, too. So sometimes uh, if you're not thinking too hard about what you're, you know, the, the angle that you're holding the pen at, you can really get some, some funny stuff happen that's kind of, it, you know, has its own life, the line quality. I just loved it. And it was surreal, gestural and loose, which for me, I'm, you know, even now, even with the Fude, I'm still probably a very <laughs> pretty tight looking artist. I don't think my work is real gestural and loose. I'm not known for those kinds of sort of flourishy line qualities that um, other people have. But it was a sea change for me in my approach to drawing, especially like the figure um, in urban spaces, which I was not good at. I kind of avoided drawing figures in urban spaces and in urban sketches in general. But at the silent auction at the end of the symposium in Manchester, I stood behind the crowd and I just would pick out figures and just start sketching them with the Fude pen. It was really addictive. And it was so quick, you know, it just really flows. It it glides on the paper and it's real juicy. So all the, the ink just comes out. So I didn't have this real careful studied line like I had with my Micron. And the other thing, as you mentioned, this kind of leads me to the, uh, you were asking about, do I draw with pen first? Or pencil first, I mean. And um, not so much. So at the very beginning, I didn't draw with pencil. And somewhere in the middle there, I don't know what happened. I started getting really cautious. And I wanted my sketches to get better. And so I thought, well, maybe if I did a little bit of pencil development first, then the finished sketches are going to look even better. And they did. They looked more well-composed, you know, because I could anticipate where the building is going to end and begin on the page and, and fit everything in or whatever scene, you know, an interior of the coffee shop. So I could compose it a little bit more strongly. And then I could also, you know, because I could correct and do all those things in the pencil under sketch, you know, any changes that needed to be made to the perspective or whatever, uh, I could get those out of the way. And then, you know, I could just draw with the pen and ink and just basically trace my my pen or my pencil underdrawing and, you know, and I'd have a much more polished sketch. And it was polished, but they kind of they had this sort of stiffness and I didn't feel like they had as lively a line quality. So after a few years, I've come back to just going straight in with pen. If there's some really tricky perspective issues or I think something is less a sketch and more a piece, like it's going to be something I might want to show or something, you know, then maybe, you know, especially also for commissioned pieces um, where I don't want to don't want to screw it up, then I'll do a, a pencil under sketch. But for the most part, um, back to the original way. But what happened in the meantime is that my compositional skills got better. They got stronger and I can anticipate problems without doing the pencil sketch and go straight to pen. But I have a, you know, it'll, it'll be a stronger drawing just by virtue of having had those few years of developing my compositional skills and refining it and honing, you know, those things and, and, um, learning what makes a better, um, composition, how to engage the edges of the page, etc. And also, I found that towards the end of me sort of dropping the pencil out of the picture again, I was already kind of ignoring a lot of things happening in the pencil sketch and just changing on the fly. I was editing as I went, 
you know? And I was like, well, that line, I don't really like that. So I'll, you know, I'll change it when I go back in with pen and ink. And I was like, well, might as well just do that without the pencil sketch then. Um, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm not going to really be beholden to that sketch anyway, then I might as well just go back and just be in pen. And for the most part, you can't really tell the difference between a, a drawing I've done. I can't where I've, I did a careful, you know, pre-sketch that erased all the lines and one where I haven't, you know, I look and I, you know, if it's more than a couple years old, I don't remember did I do it? You know, I have to look for ghost lines and pencil lines in there. And then I think the other, what was the other part of you? You were asking about my kit. And and the paper and the, like, are you still using a moleskin? And... So, no, I pretty much stopped using moleskin. I have, you know, a couple I still sort of left to be returned to because I have a, I don't know, anywhere between a half dozen and, I don't know, 20 unfinished sketchbooks that I'm like, well, I'll come back and do a couple of things in there at some point. But I started getting into Stillman and Byrne sketchbooks, I think around 2013, because a few people I knew in that community, in the urban sketching community, had been doing stuff with those, and I wanted to try some. So I bought some, and I started tagging them on Instagram and other places. And so they reached out to me, and they, you know, they were like, we'd love to help you with books. And so I've been, you know, really fortunate to have a great relationship with Stillman and Byrne. One of the few perks of my influencer lifestyle is it doesn't really, you know, you people see, oh, 300,000 followers here or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I don't get paid <laughs> to be on Instagram. <laughs> you know, it's more, I get the occasional free sketchbook or, you know, free pen to try or something like that, which, you know, it's, advertising for them so it's actually a bargain because it's a lot cheaper that for them to send me a sketchbook for the, them them to pay an advertising agency and then buy whatever an ad costs on those same platforms so um you know and i don't mind it and if i like something i'll use it and if i don't like it i try it i don't bother you know using it or tagging them or anything like that but i don't do reviews as such or anything like that right. um and i don't call out anything i don't like <laughs> You know, like I've seen some people who are like this terrible pen or this blah, blah, blah. And and can I ask you with the Stillman, is it is it a hot press paper that you're using? Is it a very smooth? Like, Well, at first I liked only the sort of hot press papers and it's a mixed media paper. So my favorite of theirs is the Epsilon series, which is a hot press, sort of a 90 pound. Um, I can't, I hope I'm right on that one, but, but close to that. It's so it's a thinner paper, but it, the miracle thing about them in terms of wet media is that they just don't buckle nice like some of the other mixed media books i've tried um they have an internal and a surface sizing it's not an animal sizing like you know an arch paper or uh, fabriano or something it's not that gelatin sizing but it's so it's a vegetable sizing but it's really sturdy and i do a lot of ink wash i don't watercolor but I'm pretty messy with the ink wash. I get a lot of moisture in the paper, and they don't buckle. Like, as long as you close them back up again. I mean, if I were to leave it open, I'm sure they get a little wavy as they dry. But they really are durable. You know, they don't bleed through, which I couldn't say for moleskin. Here I am calling out (laughs) a product, but for not working. 
But Moleskin had I had trouble with the the Moleskin sketchbooks. Now since then, since the early days of Moleskin, they added obviously they had watercolor sketchbooks and other things now, and those are fine. But their watercolor sketchbook was cold press, and something about the texture was kind of off putting for me. So I do like a hot press. Etcher is another brand that they started. They offered to send me books, so I've tried those, and I really do like the Etcher books, mm-hmm. um, the Hot Press in particular. Yeah, I've got, I don't know, yeah. they're behind me somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see them, yeah. Yeah, I've got the, the three sizes. Yeah. I love those books. Yeah. So, uh, and they're cotton, so they're 100% rag, acid-free, you know, very archival, which is one of those things. I worked at art supply stores, so I'm very uh, uh, acutely almost, it's not a... It's not a good thing that how aware I am of the archival qualities of various kinds of paper and ink now, but because um, <laughs> I see people who draw with ballpoint pen, and I'm like, that drawing is going to be gone one day. It's so sad, you know. But I'm less like that now. Actually, I do I do stuff with ballpoint pen or you know cheaper papers now, and yeah. <laughs> Don't. Don't let uh, France hear you say. That. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> she. If anybody has gotten me to try ballpoint, it's her. Yeah. So, and then uh, another one that I've been trying recently is the Hanamula. I, I'm not, my German is terrible, but um, mm-hmm. they have a really nice, the Nostalgia um, sketchbook line, the Hot Press one is really cool. So I've been using that. And we haven't talked yet about ink wash. Yeah, because I, I want to go into that, but I just want to highlight something you said. And, and that is, you know, being a, an influencer has its perks where you get to try <laughs> this stuff out. And I, I would agree. Like, I, I have 3,300 followers, right? <laughs> but I still had um, Pentel Canada reach out and want me to be their artist ambassador for mm-hmm. Canada or one of their artist ambassadors. And it's a great experience. It's unpaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent me a few things to try, but they said, you know, they're not asking me to draw something every day, but yeah. they said, you know, if you draw something with one of our tools, can you just include it in the photo? And it's like, sure, that's fine. Yeah. So I, I, I it's it's interesting to hear even at 327,000 followers <laughs> that the same rules still kind of exist, right? So it's cool that you get your paper. Well, you know, and I haven't had any, I haven't, I mean, I haven't had any weird product placement interactions or anything that's been made me uncomfortable but i also haven't had any sort of lucrative like be exclusive with us there's money coming your way kind of offers either so it's not Mm -hmm. i mean it's not the kind of influencing let's say a pop singer or somebody else on instagram where they talk about some moisturizer they use and then they get 10 grand or something like that right um so i don't know that we have that just our market is not quite it doesn't command the prices because i think even the the big shot art supply brands just the margins are so slim it's such a a niche market and it's one of those things that's you know it there's not a lot of money going (laughs) flowing in and out of those um companies and so if i like a product i'm you know i'm happy to just take a, a, a sample or two and talk about it you know, as opposed to like demanding um, whoever, like pilot pens need to pay me <laughs> or whatever right. it is. <laughs> if I'm going to use a pilot pen in my post, um, <laughs> you know, Faber Castell, come on, <laughs> po- yeah, po- right. pony it up. I'm not going to draw any more colored pencil until you get, <laughs> yeah. until you give me something, right? But right. Yeah, it's and and so to jump. Okay, so one quick question, and then we'll go to the ink washes. I just want to confirm, like for the ink that you're using, you're Platinum carbon? 
Yeah, so I have one right here in front of me. But yeah, um, the, the Platinum Carbon. Um, and then I have only started recently trying the, the De Atramentis um, document inks. And so far, so good. I love those too. Um, but I do like waterproof inks. And so for the longest time, Platinum Carbon was the only thing that was really uh, that fit the bill because it dries very quickly. It's very black and it does not reactivate with water really whatsoever after you know maybe 30 seconds so you can go over it with a wash versus like almost every ink that comes with a fountain pen the sort of standard refill black ink is very soluble and um, not waterproof whatsoever they're beautiful for drawing if you're not anticipating that you're going to use water you know wet media but even if you go over with marker or something like that, just whatever moisture is in there is just going to, the, the lines get fuzzy or bleed or whatever. So, yeah, I can't remember when I first was introduced to this. It might have been Don Colley out of Chicago who told me about carbon ink, but I can't, I couldn't say for certain. And, and then when we talk about ink washes, because that's something I want to explore a little bit with you, because um, I've seen you use water-soluble graphite, and you've loaded an ink wash into uh, water brushes. So maybe mm-hmm. you can talk about what you've done. In- I've done a few things. Yeah, I'm trying different things. The, the first, I, you know, the idea of um, putting a, a pre-loaded, having a water brush that instead of clean water in it, but having pre-loaded with a diluted ink was um, the sketcher Ed Mostly. That's his sort of pen name. Um, but I think it's Ed Harkey or Ed Harker. I can't remember exactly, but he gave me one. This was also in Manchester in 2016, and he had a little Kuratake water brush and preloaded with the Noodler's Lexington Gray, which is a really nice down-the-middle uh, gray ink, so it's not too cool. It's not too warm. I had tried some stuff with Payne's Gray, um, the Dr. P.H. Martin's Liquid Watercolors, and it was really cool. It was so cool. It was almost blue. And it just didn't appeal to me. It didn't match the line, the, the, the black in my line work. So when I saw him working with the, the Lexington Gray, I, I realized, okay, this is right in the same temperature ballpark as, you know, the Platinum Carbon ink. Um, so it works, you know, with that. And the other nice thing about it, it's part of their the Noodler's um, Bulletproof line. And which means it's also waterproof. Um, and they they have a few inks that they claim are bulletproof that I have noticed do kind of reactivate with, with wet media, but I have not seen that with the Lexington Gray. It really does stay on the page. So what I'll do is I'll dilute pretty strongly so it's mostly water and put it in a water brush and lay down a wash. And then as soon as that wash is dry, you can go back over it and it'll darken up. And And so if you layer you can really get some nice dark values to save time though. I've started doing like three water brushes with different dilution levels. So one will be a really light wash and one will be sort of medium value and one will be dark if I want to get to that dark faster. So I don't have to wait, wait to layer and I'll label them. So I remember which is which, but yeah, those are great. It's uh, and this is the thing I was teasing at the very beginning. You know what I people who've listened to the podcast know that I, I made some mushroom ink last fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I did some drawings with that. And now I'm thinking I'm gonna do some urban sketching or some ink 
drawings. And I think I'm going to take some of this mushroom ink I have and load it into a few water brushes because it's got a beautiful kind of sepia color to it that uh, I'm going to see what that looks like. And I've done some kind of light fast tests. I have got a sample in my window and a sample hidden and it doesn't, and it's been there since, I don't know, August and it really hasn't changed very much. Well, that's good. And uh, maybe I'm going to try some of that because I was thinking, I've got this little mason jar here of mushroom <laughs> ink and I'm like, you know, I want to do some more work with it, but what a kind of a fun experiment that would be. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see your results there. And um, that's another thing. I mean, once upon a time, I took a class where you, we mold our own pigments and made our own paints and things like that. And so I've, I've, you know, I, didn't, I know about walnut ink and some, you know, ox gall inks and things like that. And I've always wanted to try doing that, taking it to the next level. So I, I might want to check out your mushroom ink and see how it's working out for you. I've got, I've tried walnut ink, which is really soluble uh, in terms of uh, it's not very waterproof, but it's fun to use, and I love the color. Um, the, the mushroom ink's kind of interesting because I, I had it in like a, I use a, a deviled egg ceramic tray to hold my mushroom ink, and if if you let it dry out, it becomes this kind of black tar, but you reactivate it with water, and so if you let it sit till it dries, then you just hit it with a little bit of water, you can get really, really, really dark. Oh yeah, like real concentrated. You know, maybe I should. I should send you a little bit, just as a sponsored ad, right? <laughs> sure, I'll no, try but, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a little tube of it, and um, you're the first person outside of my household that would get this, so uh, I'm sorry <laughs> to all the listeners, but um, <laughs> I am going to make a bunch more this year, and I have a black walnut tree, so I'm actually going to make some walnut oh, wow. this, this year as well. But um, I look forward yeah. to the, buying the Henley line of inks <laughs> when, they're, when they come out. Um, this has a 20% vodka, so if you're... Oh. <laughs> if you want the edge taken off but the vodka is supposed to stop it from um uh, it's supposed to kind of freeze it in time and and i'm not seeing any bacteria or anything growing I'm not, oh yeah i don't have mushrooms in my jar here but um well and to be honest with you ed mostly has recommended when i put ink in a water brush he says to use distilled water um because otherwise the sort of impurities in the water can lead to some uh separation later down the line, uh, which regretfully, I don't do that often. I haven't had many issues, but I also think I go through it quickly enough that it's never been a problem that, cause I'll drain a water brush in a couple of sessions and then have to refill it with a new dilution. Similarly, like a lot of people ask me about like the platinum carbon ink and clogging the pens because it is a problem for people who I think use the pen once a week or once a month or something like that. And since I'm a daily sketcher, it, it never gets to that level. I'm refilling it before it's really had an opportunity to to gunk up too much. Um, but pigmented inks, just by virtue of the fact that there are little pigment solids in there as opposed to sort of dye-based inks where there is no granule within there. No matter how finely mold, those granules can accumulate and kind of gunk up the feed of a pen. Um, and so I've used like a sonic parts washer, uh, mm -hmm. ultrasonic cleaner, which uh, if you, you know, a lot of people know them for like you can use them to clean your dentures or to clean uh, jewelry or something like that. But putting pen nibs and pen feeds in there, it's just water that with ultrasonic vibrations, you don't even put a solvent or a, um, any kind of a detergent in there. And it really, it gets those dried up 
uh, pigment solids off of the, the stuff and then they flow really well again. But um, I'd be interested to know, like with those organic inks like walnut and uh, mushroom, I bet they would work really well in a water brush because cause there's no pigments. If there's no pigment, I don't think you should have too much to worry about. I mean, they might gunk up, but if there's enough moisture, like you said, they and they reactivate, then it should be good. Yeah, the last batch I did, I boiled for a little bit after I extracted the ink uh, to try and make it a little bit thicker. A reduction? <laughs> a reduction, yes. <laughs> um, well, and that's what's interesting is because, like, you can almost make little pans, like like a watercolor pan of dried mm-hmm. ink, right? And mm-hmm. and then yeah. you can just use a, a water brush and with just clean water in it and reactivate it. Yeah, like you'd have to, you know, as opposed to a watercolor pan where you, you know, you half load it and then you let it dry and then you fill it up, it probably would take about 15 attempts to get mm-hmm. it <laughs> to a point where well, yeah. it fills a pan. Is but... there a binder in there or or any kind of, um, is it just um, mushroom stuff? It's just, like I, I, the only thing I added was vodka. Yeah, so vodka. Yeah, I wonder if you added gum arabic because you can buy the gum arabic on its own. Mm -hmm. You could make mushroom watercolor um, that would be a little bit more sort of stable and solid quickly. I, you know, I'm my my art material chemistry knowledge is somewhat limited, but I think that's the binder in watercolor and and um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I should. My daughter's in second year chemistry. Maybe I should put her on this job. There you go. Make your dad some some watercolor mushrooming, but uh, I've been so happy with this. Like I did, I've done quite a few watercolor pieces, and I just—it's not just the experience of working with with the mushrooming, but it's the smell. It's mm-hmm. just this uh, the scent of the woods. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because um, I I, th- I think I've heard you talk about this before, is uh, you know a lot of people come in afterwards with uh, white gel pens to kind of throw back some highlights. That uh, what's your do you do that? What's your feeling on that? I do. And the the ultimate white pen, that's sort of the white buffalo of the sketching community, right? We're looking for the best one. I'm all, so I've, I've used the Jelly Roll, the Sakura makes, and then the Signo, or I mean, I want to say Signo. That's my Italian pronunciation coming in, but it, it's S-I-G-N-O. And is that made by, who makes that? Signo. I'm seeing if I have one handy. I probably don't have one within arm's reach, but um, I do have. I see, I see three gel pens in front of me, but not that one. Oh, is it uh, Uniball? Uniball. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, that's the Signo, and that's a that's a good one too. It's may, maybe a little less cloggy than the Jelly Roll. Oh, that's interesting. Because they have a tendency to be kind of skip and gunk up, and it, and none of them make a particularly fine line, and they're also they reactivate with water. So you have to use them last because if you go over them with a wash, sometimes you get this sort of milky, cloudy thing and the line goes away again. But for archival purposes, the best one I have discovered is, well, there's two brands, but uh, Posca uh, paint pens, the kind mm-hmm. that you shake and there's a little ball in there that mixes. And that's basically a, 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 a waterproof, like an acrylic paint inside there but it's a very you know very viscous is viscous when it's thin or when it's thick now i can't remember i think it's when it's thin it's highly viscous right yes flows easily yeah so that's what I, that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> and uh and also molotow 
makes one that's a very similar to the Posca. Um, it's a paint marker, uh, basically a very high flow acrylic white. And those are great because they're pigmented, waterproof, and you know very archival. Um, so once they're there, they're really there. And, and I don't know much about the longevity of those the more gel-based white inks. And then if you, coming from a comic book background, there is a whole line of white inks for dip pen and brush. Some people will use just white gouache straight from a tube and a very, very fine brush to do highlights. And I've done that from time to time. But that it's just a little trickier to carry around. But this one is really cool. It's called Deleter White 2. And it it's used by manga comic artists. So it's a Japanese uh, product. Deleter White 2. And it's not as thin as uh, an ink you'd find in a pen. So you really do need to use it with either a dip pen or a brush. But it is super opaque. And that is the quality that I, I like. Especially not just for highlights, but sometimes for corrections. Um, <laughs> it's nice. Erase the pen. Right. It's nice to have that really opaque because the gel pens don't really do a, a – they're, some, they're somewhat transparent. So they don't do a, a tremendous job of completely erasing a line if you really need to move one. Um, it's rare that I do need to do that but sometimes it's nice to have that tool available it's not something i carry daily um but when i've done some more commissioned work or stuff in the home it's really useful so deleter and that's what it does it's good at deleting <laughs> um so uh, yeah and then i think you you also mentioned water soluble graphite did you want yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe if you can talk about that cuz i've played with that a little bit but i'm wondering what your opinion is on that so yeah i mean i haven't found a brand i think is far and above you know the 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 others um the ones i've been playing with are art graph which is a um a brand from a portuguese company called viarco um and they make a little metal tin of water soluble graphite but they also have this water soluble carbon um that comes in these little um basically it looks like uh taylor's chalk so these little squarish tabs and you can draw directly with those, which is what a lot of artists do. Or you can use them as sort of like a watercolor pan. And you take a wet brush and then bring up a little bit of it. And basically, the less wet the brush, the more sort of concentrated and dark the value is going to be on both the graphite and the carbon. Then there's also just the water-soluble graphite pencils. Um, where you can just take your brush right to the tip of the pencil and then practice with that. I like the ones that are instead of having a wood barrel they're completely um graphite mm -hmm. and um, so it's also i just i treat them like they're a watercolor pan and i just use take a wet brush to them to peel off a little bit of the water soluble graphite the thing about it though is as you lay it down it's not as permanent as the ink and in that once you put in a second layer you kind of reactivate the first layer right and you can still move it around and it doesn't quite lay down as evenly at first, I'm I'm kind of getting the hang of it right now, but at first I was having trouble getting it, even washes with it the way I could with the the diluted ink inside a water brush. Yeah, I I was using it like I would use like a watercolor pencil and then hitting it with water, but it doesn't it doesn't act the same. Yeah, um, it's it's a, and 
Yeah, I, I'm anxious to try the ink wash, which I haven't done. Um, so I'm going to be anxious to try that, um, whether it's my mushroom ink or something else. Give it a try. And it works. Sometimes I'll do the wash bits a little bit before the line work. Uh, most of the time, it's the line work comes first for me. But lately, I've been trying to like, oh, I just I know I have a big dark value here. So I'll do this. Sometimes I've gone and done the entire page, the entire spread in wash. So I have a, a middle value. And then I'm going to lay light and dark on top of that, as opposed to starting from the white page and, and line work. So I'm mindful of the time. Yeah. I mean, I think we could probably do four hours. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to uh, talk about a couple things, and then we can get into homework. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to, like, if, if you go to Paul's Instagram and you click on his links, there's all this training and all this other stuff that you're doing. There's a workshops and there's events coming up as well. Mm-hmm. What's it like being a teacher? I mean, you were trained at some point to do that. What's it like now for you to do that with within the realm of urban sketching versus your original training? You know, I mean, I, I really enjoy teaching and I love talking about um, these concepts, the stuff that's dear to me. So I think urban sketching, teaching that as opposed to, and I've taught college level art i think close to 10 years in different places and my training as you know i started with teaching foundations and two-dimensional design and sort of the elements and principles of design and color theory things like that real basic foundations level stuff that every art student has to take even if they're going to go into sculpture or something like and then drawing and, and figure drawing and you know lots of charcoal and still lives and things like that but there's something so much more fun about teaching something that you're passionate about and that people are there specifically for your instruction. That when people take a workshop from Paul, you know, I, I hate using my name in the third person, but I'm saying <laughs> it's so funny to, you know, to say, but it's like they want to they want to know what it is I know about drawing as opposed to uh, some sort of baseline level of universally understood knowledge about drawing or painting and that it's specific to you know the things that I've learned you know and and granted it's only been 15 years of this kind of drawing for me but I think that's I can I'm much more passionate I'm animated I and I really feel confident also in terms of talking about this to people um where you know whereas I have to um, you know, in, in any other circumstances when I'm teaching sort of general art knowledge, it's, it's sort of like, it's all been established. And so I just have to kind of color within the lines in terms of that kind of teaching. And this is a little bit more personal for me. So it is really, it's a really fun experience. That's, uh, that's great. And I, the re- the other reason I brought it up is you have some stuff coming up. You're doing what? So this, we had a blast doing this last year, so we're doing it again. But myself, Uma Kalkar, James Richards, and Sherry Blaukoff, a fellow Canadian, we are all teaching at a summer retreat at the Madeline Island School of the Arts. And I, I've got to suddenly blank on the dates. Um, I think it's July 11th through the 17th. But um, so it's... And we can, you know, obviously you'll put a link in resources if you feel mm-hmm. feel so compelled. I'll link directly to it. Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's a week-long workshop. So four, and we've all taught 
at the symposiums and you know and we know each other really well we've known each other for a long time so we all really get along well so basically you teach you are you take a day with each of us and then the fifth day is sort of a coalescing of all of that knowledge and and um, come together and we look at our sketchbooks and we talk about what we've learned and we you know we do one big sketch crawl which is sort of like it's like a pub crawl but sketching you know and go out and it's in this beautiful setting it's an island in Lake Superior off the northern coast of uh, Wisconsin so the north shore of Wisconsin Madeline Island School of the Arts it's a used to be a farm and they've repurposed it into this sort of really cool art school that's not just uh, urban sketching, but also watercolor people come through, and then they have quilting and uh, creative writing and all sorts of other fun classes. Wow. So it's, um, yeah, and they stay right there on, on this, you know, the campus um, and uh, with the instructors. And we go out, and, and uh, Jim Richards and I, we taught across... Um, there's so the island's about a mile off the shore, so we taught at the little town um, across the you know you know the water um, that's on the mainland uh, called Bayfield, Wisconsin, because it's a little bit more urban of a setting. Um, and then Sherry and Uma did watercolor stuff on the island, and there's a beautiful marina. There's boats you can paint, and there's water, and there's rocks, and really just a thrilling location. I had no idea. Uh, until we went out last year, uh, just how sort of gorgeous and sort of st- stunning the location was. So it was really cool. You have me tempted now. I'm going to have to take a little <laughs> peek at this. <laughs> yeah, so I'll link directly to that. And uh, you always have stuff coming up. So I think if if some if anything about mm-hmm. what Paul's been saying is, is of interest, you have to check out uh, the links. You've got uh, so many of them. And uh, on the Drawing Inspiration website, I have starter packs. So I've grouped podcast episodes together based on content. And I think since I've had have you on and I've had other guests around Urban Sketching, I think I'm going to take the pen and ink starter pack and call it pen, ink, and urban sketching and put you in there with a few others and just beef that up because I just, I'm drawn to you, your work, and so many others who've done work in this space. And I just think it's so accessible, as you said earlier. And it is, all you need is something to write on and something to write with. And I just, I'm so excited about all these people that so many of them are coming back to art or coming to art for the first time later in life. And this is how they choose to walk into it. And I think it's incredible. Now with that, I always ask about homework. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what kind of homework you would have as the teacher for us today. Well, we kind of touched a little bit about about the idea of a sort of panoramic drawing. And one of the things that sort of um, that I teach um, in my workshops is this idea of wide-angle perspective, or so-called fisheye drawings, or I prefer the term POV drawings, point-of-view drawings, because I often include my hands and my sketchbook in the drawing. Because it started with a sort of an exercise I used to give my foundation students, which was that draw everything you can see in front of you on a little single sheet of copy paper, and then add a sheet to the left and to the right and to the top, up top and bottom until you sort of feel you you're filled it with your field of view like everything because most of the time we tend to kind of crop in kind of closely on a subject or a narrow uh, sort of portion of our field of view mm-hmm. um, and the idea was like well how much of that can you really squeeze into the page and after I'd sort of those panoramic drawings I 
you know, I, I wanted to play with perspective that way and say, well, how much can I fit of my whole field of view, whether I'm indoors or outdoors? So as, a, as an exercise to just sort of get into that headspace, you can go, there are proper sort of so-called um, linear and curvilinear perspective rules that you can follow, or you can take a more intuitive approach to just sort of cataloging all of this visual information that's in front of you. But the homework would be start with your hands and your sketchbook. That's something that you can see. We know that. And then work your way out into the space. And if you feel like adding more paper to the you know, left and right or something like that, you know, do that. You can tape it on or staple it on or whatever it is. Or if you just want to stop when you get to the edge of the page, that's fine. But using your point of view and your actual physical person as a jumping off point, it's so much fun to kind of to investigate space that way. And, and to see where it takes you. And you'd be surprised at the, the things you can learn about scale and proportion and other sort of observational strategies uh, just by doing that, by starting with those immediate sort of foreground objects. That's excellent. I, I've seen you uh, talk about this, and it's something I need to pursue. So I think I'm going to give it a shot. I would suggest that uh, for the listener, if you decide to do this and you want to share it, then, uh, you know, take myself and, and take Paul and... and and uh, we'd like to to get a look at it as well. So uh, I encourage you all to do that. I'm I'm excited to try it. <laughs> you know, there's so much. I, I almost would like to have you come on again, and <laughs> we can focus on a few other areas because there was so much I wanted to to cover. And uh, as I say, I could feel like I could <laughs> talk to you for hours. Um, so I do appreciate your time, and I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that we're kind of over what I had predicted we would do, but I appreciate you hanging on for this. And uh, well, absolutely, yeah. Thanks for the invitation, and um, it's really been fun chatting with you. And sorry, you know, I I can go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's all. This is the flavor. This is what we're here for. This is what we're listening. The people listening right now, they're here for this. And uh, I think uh, this has been an incredible conversation. I want to make sure that before we end it, that uh, you, you can talk about where people can find you. Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok. Um, for the most part, that's where I post. Uh, and Paul Heaston in all of those places. So either at Paul Heaston or you can just search my name. I don't have any... Uh, nicknames or special handles or anything like that um, and I also have a blog which I haven't updated in a, in a little bit but um, it's called three letter word for art and um, and it's various musings when I you know when I have the inclination um, and sometimes some instructional posts um, I've put together I have a YouTube page I forgot to, also uh, Paul Heaston uh, and I've been posting there a little bit more lately but um, yeah, virtually everywhere on on the internet these days. <laughs> wherever wherever your wife tells you to end up next, right? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, I wanted to thank you again for, for coming on. This has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I am going to send you some mushroom inks, so I'm going to get your uh, All right, Mike. The details after the episode. And I don't expect you to endorse it <laughs> <laughs> in one of your videos, but I, I would love to, uh, to, to see what you think of it. Um, so... Thanks again. This has been such a pleasure. I'm wishing you all the best in, in 2022. And uh, I hope that at some point we can meet in person. That would be fantastic. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Would love it. Thanks, Mike. All right. So take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Paul and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 76. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, 
share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 